All right, as promised on last week's program, we want to talk yet a little bit more about uh, the late, great Ed Martin. He's a legend here at KDVS and touched a lot of lives. Someone who's not able to, to attend the memorial for Ed that took place in Grass Valley, but someone we do want to hear from is our good pal, Franz Cassing. So let me say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Franz. Thank you so very much. It's lovely to be able to sing the praises of Ed Martin and to share some of the lessons I believe he imparted to all of us and a much wider community than KBVS. Yes, indeed. Um, you, you've been, you were at the station long before I got there, and, and Ed, I think, came and went, uh, so I guess you and he went back quite a long time. Well, uh, I, my email go back to 209 from Ed, but I was on the air for about 12 years as one of your colleagues and public affairs show and it was amazing i'm sure like you i received tons of supportive emails from ed who never spoke about himself unless it was relevant and it was amazing how many things he had done that were relevant to whatever topics i profiled at Yes, indeed. Did you ever have him on uh, It's About You? No, I never. I never took that sad opportunity. I should have. It's very sad that I did not. I know. I'm kicking myself. We only had him on a couple times. We kept meaning to bring him back, but of course that's no longer possible. But uh, what, what would you say? I mean, everyone had such nice things to say about him at that, at that memorial. And, and what do you think were the things you take away most from your experience with him? Well, I came up with five um, overarching principles. I okay. Think. Ed Martin believed, number five, <laughs> in forming and nurturing friendships. He kept in touch with, I don't know how many hundreds of people, via email and postcards. He always supported live music, and I don't know how many musicians were his friends. And he was very, as you may know, generous with his praise. But that's the fifth principle. The fourth principle is he celebrated and safeguarded nature. The third principle is that he explored and supported music and live music with no limitations on genre, which made him a natural fit with KDVS, of course. And number two is he learned always. He read blogs and books and kept in touch with his favorite authors, and they grew to know him as a friend. And also, I think, overall, believes in being kind, always and to everyone. Yes, always sweet disposition. Ed was always in a good mood. He was so very gallant. <laughs> he had the best of what I think asserts, you know, the traits that you associate with a wonderful southern gentleman. Yes, indeed. Well, I got to say one thing that you, you just mentioned something that just really struck me at, at the memorial. People were getting up there. I mean, twenty-something people, our fellow uh, DJs yes. at, at KDBS, and they were talking about how they'd be talking about this genre or that, something that was very esoteric and very youth-oriented. And Ed would be would be informing <laughs> these twenty-somethings yeah. about these genres, things they didn't know about. And they learned from him. Yes, and he only brought it up 
never to to uh, throw a spotlight on himself. He was so very generous and self-effacing in a way. It's it was also amazing is devotion to workers' rights. Yes, I think if there's one thing that really got him, and then you find out that he worked with labor greats like Cy Khan. He knew Michael Yates personally, Steve Early. He, he was an avowed leftist, but only because he so very much believed in the dignity of men and women everywhere. Yes, and I got to say, I'm looking to the pledge drive the show will have in April. Ed was, I think, my wingman in the last couple of years, and I just, he was the best, and I'm so going to, I'm just going to so miss him when we, you know, come April. He was wonderful, wasn't he? Let's talk a little bit about his postcard writing. Could we talk about that? Yeah, I didn't know he was an inveterate uh, postcard writer, and the people up there kept talking about getting postcards from Ed for years. I mean, he must have spent all of his time writing postcards. We only know about the KDVS people he got cards from. <laughs> right. And he knew people across the world. And... I know that he formed friendships with some of my guests through books that I featured one book of theirs, Ed had read them all. Wow. By one author. So I put him in touch with one of the authors at his request, and that author contacted me when he found out Al was ill, and was he and his family were deeply chagrined. Ed had gone from being a fan of his writing and his work to being a personal friend, and that was the magic of Ed. Yes, indeed. I was so impressed by the fact that there was a room full of people and, and young people, and they were everybody had a different facet of them. There were and, they, and there were many facets to this guy, and uh, a lot of times they said he would, um, if he didn't feel like going into one aspect of his life, he would divert you. And I know he did that to me on many occasions. I started being curious about something or other he was doing, and he he just would talk about, you know, something else, meaning that there was an awful, there were many, many facets to this man. He was so brilliant. I'm sure his IQ was off the chart. No doubt. And unusually, he had a heart that surpassed that IQ. I look at Ed and think many times I wish I could be a little more like that, and I guess he's a reminder that we should try to be a little more like that, and that's what I'm going to, I think, take away uh, from Ed. Well, we can only try, can't we? <laughs> well, Franz, it's it's a pleasure having you on here, and I hope you will come on again because, you know, you shouldn't be a stranger. Well, you're very, very kind, and much, much success to KDVS and Radio Parallax during the fundraiser. Come back on in the, about that time, and, and, and we'll talk about some of the great guests you had, because that's another yet another reason why people should pledge to this station. Well, thank you very much. Au revoir. <laughs> Au revoir. All right, we did not get a chance uh, this whole month, this is our last show of the month, to mention anything as regards Black History Month. But it was 50 years ago, I think last week or a few days back, that Malcolm X was assassinated. He was, it turns out, shot down by fellow members of 
the nation of Islam because he had broken with them. We've tried to make a point in this program to talk about political assassinations in this country because very often they have changed the course of events. But we've never had a chance to say anything about Malcolm X, and unfortunately we won't have any time to do so today, but we will try and return to that topic sometime soon. This month also features President's Day as a holiday. They managed to combine Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday into one three-day weekend. And fair is fair, both men are worthy of commemoration. But I was struck from a piece in Yahoo News titled 10 People Who Very Nearly Became President. And I thought this might be worth a detour of a few minutes. They mentioned five men who almost became president by election and five men that almost became president by succession. Let's start with the succession first. Now we have to note by way of background that from the time the country started, back in 1792 up until 1886, the line of presidential succession went from president to vice president to president pro tempore of the Senate. These days, the number three in line is the Speaker of the House. So it was back in 1884 that Willie P. Magnum was an almost president. In 1844, the president was John Tyler. He was the first man to succeed to the presidency from the vice presidency. And since that had never been done before, there was a lot of fighting and squabbling over whether he was really the president or he was just the acting president. Turns out Tyler was almost the acting corpse when he was nearly killed in a shipboard explosion back in 1844. Tyler was apparently stopped by a dignitary on his way up the deck to witness a naval gun display on the USS Princeton. The gun exploded and killed the Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Navy instead. If Tyler had gotten blown up, Willie P. Magnum would have been our nation's 12th president. Then there's Lafayette S. Foster. He happened to be the... Senate President Pro Temp in 1865 when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Part of that plot included an assassination of Vice President Andrew Johnson, but it turned out the guy who was supposed to kill Johnson lost his nerve. If he hadn't, Lafayette S. Foster would have been the nation's 17th president. Then there's Benjamin Wade. When Andrew Johnson replaced Lincoln in the White House, he was put on trial by the Senate after being impeached by the House. He survived by one vote. And it turns out one of the theories about how Andrew Johnson escaped a guilty verdict in the Senate by one vote was that there was a contingent of senators who didn't want Benjamin Wade, who was a radical Republican, as acting president. Said one newspaper at the time, Andrew Johnson is innocent because Ben Wade is guilty of being his successor. Then there's Thomas W. Ferry. Back in 1876, as we'll talk about in a minute, the Republicans stole the national election. Samuel Tilden, who we'll talk about in a minute, should have become the 19th president of the United States. But as the political chicanery was going on and they had to come out with a vote to decide who was going to get these disputed electors, well, if they hadn't wind up ruling in favor of Rutherford B. Hayes just two days before Inauguration Day, Ferry, the Senate's pro tempore at the time, would have been the acting president. And finally, there's John Nance Garner. Garner almost became president under the terms of the 20th Amendment, which had been ratified just weeks before an assassination attempt on President-elect Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933. The 20th Amendment was ratified on January 23, 1933, and back in those days, the new president didn't take the oath of office until March 4th. Therefore, during that interim period, if Giuseppe Zangara, who opened fire on a car in Miami that contained President-elect Roosevelt, had hit Roosevelt... Garner would have, in fact, become the 33rd president. By the way, Zangara missed Roosevelt, but he fatally wounded Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. 
All right, let's do the guys that almost became president by election, starting with Aaron Burr. Until they had a 12th Amendment, no one foresaw the possibility that electors picking the president and vice president, but not specifying which votes went to who, could wind up then with a tie, which is exactly what happened in the 1800 election. Thomas Jefferson running for president and Aaron Burr running for vice president both got 73 votes. Given a tie in the Electoral College, the race was thrown into the House. And it turned out that Aaron Burr lost on the 36th ballot. It took him 36 ballots to vote Burr out. And it actually turned out that it was due to the influence of Alexander Hamilton, his political enemy. Of course, Burr managed to get even by later killing Hamilton in a duel. We already mentioned Samuel Tilden. He won the popular vote in 1876 against Rutherford B. Hayes, but four southern states had two rival sets of electors due to Republican Party chicanery. It took the actions of a special commission of Congress and the Supreme Court to head off a constitutional crisis. Hayes wound up taking the election by one electoral vote, even though three of the southern states' votes were clearly fraudulent. This was the most obviously stolen election in American history, with the, pop, with the possible exception of the 2000 election, which we'll come to in a minute. All right, then there's Winfield Scott Hancock on the often forgotten 1880 election. Hancock lost to James Garfield by the closest popular vote margin in history, 0.09%. Turns out each candidate won 19 states, but Hancock, a Pennsylvanian and Democrat, couldn't win one single northern state, and he lost by 56 electoral votes. All right, number nine out of our ten, Charles Evans Hughes. On election night in 1916, Hughes went to bed thinking he'd won the election against President Woodrow Wilson. The former Supreme Court justice would later find out that California went to Wilson by 3,000 votes and it cost Hughes the White House. Supposedly, when reporters were wired the California electoral votes and they went to go ask Hughes about it, one of his aides said, the president is asleep. To which the reporter replied, well, when you wake him up, tell him he isn't the president. And then finally, we've got Al Gore in 2000, the topic we've talked about in this show many times. It was fraudulent. It was disgusting. And one of the masterminds behind it, Jeb Bush, wants to be our next president. If that happens, this correspondent will take up residence in Costa Rica. All right, speaking of right-wing weasels, let's close the show talking about Bill O'Reilly. It turns out he's in a little bit of hot water for some exaggerations in his history. Former colleagues are saying that Bill O'Reilly, in fact, lied about the suicide of George DeMornshield, a notable figure in the JFK assassination case. DeMornshield was the most interviewed person in the Warren Commission report, and he certainly buried Lee Harvey Oswald as the assassin of the president. In 1977, as the JFK case was reopened by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Bill O'Reilly was a reporter. He worked for WFAA-TV in Dallas, which regularly reported on stories related to the Kennedy assassination. O'Reilly has bizarrely inserted himself into the George DeMornshield story, claiming in books and on Fox News that he was outside the house seeking to interview DeMornshield when he heard a shotgun blast. DeMornshield did take his own life rather than talk to investigators from the House Select Committee. We would note that O'Reilly's implausible tale was first flagged by Jefferson Morley, in the 2013 post for his website, jfkfacts.org, Morley has worked as an editor for the Washington Post, Salon.com, and Arms Control Today. He's currently a visiting professor at the University of California at Washington Center, and we're proud to say has been a Radio Parallax guest. 
And it turns out that new interviews with former O'Reilly colleagues say he wasn't in Florida on the day DeMornshield suicided. And documents obtained by Media Matters bolster Jefferson Morley's reporting. Bill O'Reilly is a liar. Lies, lies, you're telling me that you'll be true. Lies, lies, that's all I ever get from you. That about does it. Our thanks to Franz Cossing, James Eugenio, and our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. For next week's show, we're hoping to bring on infectious disease expert, Dr. Stuart Cohn. I hope we'll talk about vaccinating your kids, the Ebola crisis, why we need more legislation to protect us from antibiotic misuse, and possibly how your life might be saved in the future via a fecal transplant. Holy crap. Oh, girl, do lead me on this way.